Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, we have one of our own faculty from Columbia, someone who I've known a long time and worked very closely with, Dr. Scott Small. Dr. Small is the Boris and Rose Katz Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry and the Director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University. And we're talking to him today about his work, but also in light of a recently published book called Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering. Uh, which is Dr. Small's entree into publishing for the lay public information that's scientifically, in terms of public health, very relevant, but is uh, too little understood. And the challenge for scientists and researchers and clinicians is how do you present information in a way that's accessible and understandable to the lay public so that it benefits them and can contribute to their overall health. Now, Scott, I have to say that even though I've known you a long time, we consider ourselves you know, close colleagues and friends, that I learned more about you in reading the book than I have in the 10 plus years that we've been uh, acquainted. And um, it wasn't just because of the biographical material that was in there, but it was about what I could infer from the uh, literary quality of the book. And I have to say, even though you know, you're a stellar researcher and person, I was surprised by the literary quality of it. And I don't want to uh, gush too much, but um, suffice to say, uh, you made the transition from turgid academic prose to sparkling literary prose very successfully. So let me begin by saying, are asking you, what was the experience like you know, trying to write for the public and what was it that prompted you to do it? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thank you. And uh, it's a compliment coming from anyone, but particularly from you, Jeff, because you too have managed to bridge this gap. And it is a gap. And it was not hubris on my side to think that it would be easier than I thought. <laughs> and in my acknowledgments, I acknowledge my editor who really helped me. I, 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 I model it after learning a, a new musical instrument. I think you and I, when we write academically, we know a particular music in, in, instrument. We do well writing there. And for that audience, there is a quality to the writing. And because I'm considered pretty good at that, I figured it would be a pretty easy transition. I really needed to learn from scratch a new musical instrument. And because of that, I really do thank my very active editor, Jillian Blake, and if I may, not just idle compliments, uh, thanking my wife, who's a, who, who's a well-read artist, not a scientist. She, I really vetted everything with her. If she didn't get it, if I lost her, I know I lost my audience. So it, it was an interesting experience and it still turned out to be a lot harder than I thought. And I really worked hard on that. So I'm really happy for what you say. Well, let, let, me, let me just give uh, the listeners uh, an idea about what I'm referring to. So for people that don't know, Scott is uh, um, born from Israel, uh, immigrated with his family to the United States, and uh, then pursued medicine as a career in academic uh, neurology and psychiatry as an area of specialization. And he's extraordinarily successful and very hardworking, hard driving. Uh, but the book shows that he's got a soft side and really actually a humane side and almost you know kind of a poetic side. So. To give you an idea, uh, let me just read a few quotes from the book that I've selected. Listening to the cry for the anatomical source of a disease is a poetic turn of phase that was used in the late 18th century, the dawn of modern medicine, articulating the biomedical search and rescue logic of anatomical biology. 
zeroing in on the anatomical source of disease promises to reveal its root cause and ultimately its therapeutic potential. Then in another context, he sort of uh, reveals his literary acumen by quoting uh, Jorge Luis Borges, the great uh, South American and Latin American writer, quote, to think is to forget a difference, to generalize is to abstract. And we'll elaborate on that in a moment in terms of what the significance of this is. Then this is a little bit of a longer quote, but I love it. Nature gave us an appendix. It is possible that the forgetting appendix as the vestigial organ in a person's abdomen that sometimes it comes inflamed and uh, has to be removed because of appendicitis. It is possible that the forgetting toolbox serves no beneficial function or is just a vestigial holdover from some ancient period or worse than a benign relic. It might accidentally be detrimental in our relatively new environment, so cognitively rich and ever-changing. Perhaps once evolution catches up to these new cognitive pressures, following its own slow metronome, we will rid ourselves of the forgetting toolbox that seems to trouble us all. We will evolve to be like computer clouds with minds of potentially infinite memory, minds that never forget. So I, I can never remember a paper that you wrote or that we wrote together that suggested that you were capable of such, uh, such a poetic uh, phrases or turns of words, but um, I'm going to listen to you a little more carefully uh, in the future. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing that was really impressive is the way you used. So for the listeners to try and communicate very complex scientific issues is challenging and there's nothing more challenging than the brain. Um, so this was really a, uh, uh, a, Herculean task to try and do this in a way that was going to hold people's attention. But the other device that you used that was really good were analogies. So a couple of the analogies, you, you analogize the brain in some ways to the uh, elements of a computer, uh, operating system, storage, hard drive, cloud, a teacher, and a librarian that you contrast. What's the difference between a teacher and a librarian? The idea of a toolbox, the brain has different uh, tools and is in some sense a toolbox. The, the idea of a, a home, which is being remodeled as a way the brain keeps changing dynamically when it learns and when it forgets. And the idea that neurologists and hopefully soon psychiatrists are mechanics, brain mechanics, at least we're good at diagnosing uh, and we have to sort of uh, make additional progress in terms of the fixing. But um, is that something you like came by naturally or did you sort of uh, land upon that, that device, which I found to be very effective? Well, I, I think... I'm not sure it's natural. Well, it, on one on one hand, I think you, you like I, Jeff, where we like literature, we read a lot, and that is a device of literature in fiction and nonfiction. So metaphors, analogies, similes. On the other hand, and this was my constant struggle, is that in our science writing, we have to be careful of analogies. We have to be careful of coming across too simplistic and 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 simplifying. So that was a constant struggle. I worked really hard on thinking of terms, whether they're analogies or metaphors, that I think I felt could be helpful to try to not get bogged down in the details. Now, it's, at some level, I, I do begin the first chapter of the book in a way spoofing uh, metaphors. We all think Wittgenstein said that every word is a metaphor, but we, particularly when it comes to memory and maybe many complex things we have, we all go to metaphors. And I, in a way, start with a metaphor that my first patient of the book complains of. He says, look, I always had a memory like a steel trap. 
And I begin in a way foreshadowing how not every metaphor is good because that's a terrible metaphor for memory on many levels. So I think metaphors are helpful and I'm very happy uh, and delighted, frankly, that you found them useful. You, you in particular, because you know when I was talking to my editor, we, I really set out ambitiously, and you know that I am, I am ambitious, right? I could have written this as a book for a subpopulation, people who have no background in science, but I felt like I'd like to write this as a book for everyone. And that's a very, very broad umbrella. And so I, I'm, I'm happy that someone like you, a reader like you, you found these analogies helpful and not hokey. Uh, they weren't hokey and they weren't gimmicky and they were apt. Uh, so uh, it was a good way of putting it, particularly for uh, a lay audience. The other thing that was really, I think, striking uh, and is commonly done for, for nonfiction uh, writers is they try and weave in their own personal biographical experiences into the story or into the, the subject. And you did that very effectively. I mean, not so much the writing, but the fact that you've led a very interesting life and a very uh, a diverse life in terms of your experiences and you know the the sections on uh, your experience in the Israeli defense force particularly um, in combat uh, in uh, Lebanon the experience you've had with uh, some acquaintances and and friends so socially like Jasper Johns and also um, you know your your scientific uh, biography in terms of the people that you've worked with uh, professionally and like Dan Geshwind and so forth. You know that that I think was very helpful in revealing you as a person to the reader, and also you know giving people uh, an idea of what the life of somebody who's a so-called pointy-headed scientist is like. And it's it's not so pointy-headed and nerdy as many in respect, although you're probably somewhat of an exception to to most of us. Well, I, I mean, you know, again, at the on the process level, it was clear that this is not going to be a scientific American piece, by which I mean that you just focus on the science and you try to make it simplified. Uh, I, I do think, because I do read a lot, that nar what you're describing, I think, is called narrative nonfiction to really weave it into your, your own narrative. Now, when I talk about the people I'm lucky enough to interact with, whether it's Jasper or Yuval Niria in our institute or, 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 or Danny Kahneman, that was good fortune and that worked well. But when I got to the, when I got too personal, I'll, I'll admit, I struggled with that. And uh, if I may take, tell you the quick story there, and that's the chapter on PTSD, where I think in some ways it's the easiest chapter to understand. I think most people understand that emotional memories that burn too hot can cause detriment to our well-being. I think most people know you need to forgive or forget to forgive. They understand that PTSD is a disorder of too many emotional memories. So that conceptually was the easiest to articulate. But then when I talked to our expert at Columbia on PTSD, he was going to be sort of my guide through this chapter. And I thought, well, Yuval, do you have a patient maybe we can talk to? I'd like to incorporate that. And since he also is from Israel and he knew very well my personal experience, he says, well, why don't you talk about yourself? And I said, absolutely not. That's too personal. But he convinced me to, to do it. I had to get permission from my friends who are my con comrades in arms uh, way back when, decades ago, in this battle you're describing. And I, I, I think it was effective. It was also effective for me, if I might keep on going, Jeff, and that you know that you and I are developing drugs, chemicals to cure schizophrenia, to cure Alzheimer's. And what was really interesting is in writing this chapter, in asking why do some people do or do not develop PTSD, it turns out that behavioral issues are critical. 
being surrounded by a protective social fabric, uh, surrounded by love and laughter, things that I would never articulate to a patient emerged from writing that chapter. So it, it turned out to be very interesting, both on me exposing my personal experience and on the conclusions that were derived. Okay, well, uh, let, let's get to the substance of the book in terms of you know what its uh, initial framing topic is and the, uh, the way in which you've addressed it iteratively in the uh, different chapters, which describe various types of uh, clinical or behavioral conditions. So the, the topic is forgetting. And your thesis is, is that forgetting is not something which is kind of a limitation of the brain or a sign of uh, failing of the brain through age or disease, but that forgetting is actually a normative and necessary function that the brain utilizes for purposes of you know, maintaining information in an efficient way. Then you go on to describe different types of either conditions or temperaments and personalities and behavioral styles, which reflect, reflect that. So can you just elaborate on what is the evidence that forgetting is really necessary other than you know, your own intuitive reasoning? Right, absolutely. And that's a great way for me maybe to, to, to tell you a little bit about the structure of the book and how I, I try to write it to be compelling because I didn't, I, I didn't set out to write a feel good book, you know, celebrate your foibles. I didn't write, and let me be very clear at the get-go, Jeff, uh, this is not a book on the poeticizing pathology, the silver lining of having pathological forgetting. So at the get-go, this is not about pathological forgetting, the forgetting that worsens as we age. Right. So you're not going to call Alzheimer's neurodiversity. It's a, it's no. a disease. It's a, it's a disease. And I, I, and I dedicate the book to my patients because I see the suffering. That is not what this book is about. It's about the forgetting that we're born with that occurs naturally, uh, that we all have, yet we all complain about it. So the way I write the book and what you asked earlier, maybe I didn't really answer what really triggered the book. For me, it had to be first and foremost anchored in hardcore biology. And as you know, I trained with Eric Kendall, the last 50, 60 years of brain science has clarified memory mechanisms. The new science of forgetting, which really has just emerged in the last 10 years, has uh, established some really interesting insight uh, onto forgetting mechanisms that are distinct from memory. So now we, we, we know that nature has endowed us with two separate toolboxes in the brain cells and our neurons. One that induces memory, the other that reduces memory, that forgets. That alone sets up the interesting question, well, if nature endowed us with something, gifted us, a me mechanism shouldn't it be beneficial, and that's why I, I, I use the appendix as an example of how that logic might be seductive, because uh, maybe it's just a holdover. And so then what I do in subsequent chapters, I review emerging evidence from neurology, psychiatry, psychology, and even philosophy that shows and justifies why we need forgetting to balance our memory, to, to live uh, better, smarter, and happier lives. So you've remarked to me on various occasions that I have a good memory because you were surprised that I remembered something. And uh, then we, of course, know the fact that there are these savants and these individuals that have this uh, um, encyclopedic memory. And the psychologist Jim McGaw, James McGaw, has uh, made a study of such individuals. So is that kind of a maladaptive form of neurodiversity? Well, the first thing I'll say about uh, Jim's beautiful work 
and other work that have identified people who have really what seems like photographic memory, but it's only photographic memory for particular kinds of information. So the McGaw work is on autobiographical memory. When these people come to labs, cognitive labs, and they get tested for more general memory, for words, for faces, they're actually performing as well as, as most people in some areas, surprisingly less. So the first myth I think is that there's someone walking around who has a memory like our computers. No one does. People have exceptional pockets of memory, autobiographical memory, chess players for chess, tennis players for tennis movement. But that's the first thing to say. Now, again, the point of the book is that not, not you know, forgetting is great, memory is bad. It's not the sort of subversion of what we all thought. Memory is great, forgetting is important, and they work in balance to really, and if you think maybe about another analogy, you have an engine or our brains, we, an engine has both a braking system, forgetting and an accelerating system, memory. And it's only when they work together can you really sculpt and navigate through life. So it's not a problem to have memory. Certainly when you and I were for, forced to le learn our cranial nerves in medical school, it was super beneficial to, to do well. I'm sure you did better than I, but it's an interesting question. What happens if someone really has that, 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 that brain, that superpower that we sometimes all fantasize about, what would happen if I can rid myself of all my forgetting? And, and that would be miserable, actually. So that's the sort of question. An, an old Olympus towering taps, a thin in German viewed <laughs> some hops. <laughs> oh, I, I want the audience, I don't know who's watching, to know that that's the mnemonic for learning cranial nerves. And I don't even remember the mnemonic, but doc, Dr. Lieberman does. That's why his memory is better than mine. Proof in live time. Um, so, so, I mean, just uh, very generally speaking, um, forgetting serves a housekeeping function. And uh, would you say it it's, can be viewed in a sense like pruning a tree? Yeah, and that's a great example, like pruning a lawn, and I actually use that, in fact, in the chapter on creativity in my discussions with Jasper Johns. I, in some way, to give structure to the book, there are chapters that deal with what I said at the beginning is somewhat understandable, and that is that for emotional memory, you want to be able to forget. People intuitively understand that. The other chapters, which are, which are a little less intuitive, but to me more interesting, are even forgetting of information is important. It's important for our ability to generalize, to see the forest from the trees. It's important for our creativity. So there are basically two kinds of forgetting that we need to balance our memory, emotional forgetting and factual information-based uh, forgetting. So, well, in, in, in uh, the book, you also uh, describe different uh, tools in the toolbox. One is how memories are preserved and uh, what the anatomical components are of that process. And then you talk about how they're extinguished and you talk about how they're retrieved. Um, how can you tell the difference between retrieval failure and forgetting? Yeah, it, it's actually what we do when I'm presented with a patient, a true patient of who's, they don't know the difference, they shouldn't, they just say I'm forgetting more. And so what we try to do as neurologists is to localize that problem. And if I may just expand a little bit on uh, how we all can intuitively understand the differences and the difficulties. We are presented not with a metaphor, with a perfect analogy, and that's our uh, computers. So if, I'm, if I was to type something on the screen right now and I'd wanna save it, I need to click save, right? That function is a function unto itself in our brain subserved by the hippocampus, which many people know. 
that memory store is more or less in the back of the brain. That's a little bit simplified. And then if you come back tomorrow and you want to open up that information document, you need a click open function, the ability to look through all your files and retrieve the right file that is served more or less by the frontal cortex. So in a way, computer engineers solve the problem of how to manage lots of information by having a memory store, an ability to save information, an ability to retrieve information. So did uh, Mother Nature solve that problem when she was confronted with how to deal with our brains handling loads of information. So just uh, as a kind of interim summary, what uh, hopefully we've explained and what's described in the book is the fact that uh, memory is actually a very diverse set of functions. There's not a single template for memory. There are many, memory is a record of experience and information, but there's spatial memory, there's verbal memory, there's uh, biographical memory and so forth. And these are formed and maintained and recalled by the activity of different structures in the brain. Um, and so in that sense, uh, Scott is a, a brain mechanic and landscaper and architect and trying to define where these things are and how to manipulate them in a way that's therapeutic. So you pay, uh, understandably, a lot of attention to the hippocampus and the amygdala, which are key for laying down memories. And the amygdala, I guess, is involved in the emotional valence associated with the informational part of the memory, correct? Yeah, and just a, an example I use over and over again, the canonical example, you know, you meet a person, you remember their face and the name, or you don't. That's what I mean by cognitive information. But if the person was, was unfriendly or unlikable, you remember... Uh, the emotional valence. And so that's exactly what's stored in the amygdala, more or less, as a simplification. But then, then when it gets stored, it gets stored in a particular area of the brain. Yes. Yeah. That's where the hard drive is. Yeah. And that's more or less in the back of the brain. There are, the, you know, that this is a simplification. There are many areas, but there are hubs and, of course, comprised of billions of neurons. But one can really think of a hub and spoke model. So all the information gets funneled to the back of the brain. Uh, and together with the amygdala, that's where how you store information, faces and names, and emotional associations combined with that. So each person is getting sensory input, just like we are now, and just like the listeners are uh, in listening to this. And they're processing it in their hippocampus and amygdala after the sensory information is rooted through the sensory perception pathways into the brain. And then uh, it is potentially stored in the appropriate area if it's deemed important enough or if they want to allocate enough storage space you know, to, to retain it. Yes, that's exactly right. And again, we all experience that sort of brain, that memory failure. We bump into someone, we know we recognize the face, but we can't think of the name. Great example. I'm not saying that we should not be frustrated by that, but don't be so frustrated to think, good riddance, get rid of all my forgetting, because if that were to happen, that would lead to its own series of uh, problems. And in fact, the brain has evolved to have a balance of memory and forgetting, to be able to extract generalizations, to be able to forget pain, uh, and to be able to be create, creative and better people, frankly. I'm going to come back to that in a, in a second. But first, you, you mentioned names. So recalling names seems to be harder than recalling. So, you know, I can see somebody 
and I met them before, or I'm talking about somebody that, in a conversation and I can visualize them, but I can't recall their name. Why is anomia a higher level of, of, of effort required for retrieval? Yeah, that, that, that's spot on as an observation. A lot of reasons for that. One of the, I think, the most compelling reasons is that faces are more, A, faces are much more distinct than names. Names are typically redundant. So, and B, our brains in particular have evolved to have face areas where we have evolved to really recognize faces as containing a lot more information than a name. So it's elaborated more in our brain and therefore it's stored more. If you were to turn to songbirds, they probably would have an easier time remembering auditory information. So it very much is, it is dependent on the way our brains interact with the world. We're much more visual than we are auditory. So, so you have your five senses uh, funneling stimuli into the information into the brain and it goes to the amygdala and hippocampus and a determination is made about you know, storing it or forgetting it or just letting it not get maintained and it gets stored in the appropriate place in some cortical region. And then when you want to recall it, you know, you have to call on the frontal lobe, which is the, that's the, that's the um, operating system, I believe. Yeah, in a way, that's the librarian. So, you know, think of your memory store as a library. You know, if you needed to find a book in one of, and I don't know if your audience still remembers libraries, <laughs> we all rely on our computers, but imagine a big library. If, I, if you wanted to find a book by yourself, just like the frontal cortex, you, uh, without the frontal cortex, you ultimately will. But if you want to find it fast, you need the librarian to help you organize, sort, and find that right shelf the right book number, that's what the frontal cortex more or less does. So there has to be, I guess, some kind of balance or, or, or maintenance of um, information storage and um, information deletion based on priority, importance, uh, and some other considerations. Um, how is that done? Well, I mean, that's absolutely true. And if you want to improve your memory in certain things that you're learning, try to um, assign importance to it. Obviously, we remember things that are important to us more than we remember things that aren't. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's basically built into the way memory is not only triggered, but also maintained and ultimately stored. So there's a sort of buffer period to where it really becomes a fixed memory and things mm -hmm. that are more important to us are going to be um, perseverating more in our brain, are gonna be more elaborate. They're gonna be remembered better. And I think most people would acknowledge that's a good thing. Remembering unimportant things can be a nuisance. Again, I think that's pretty intuitive. So that's that, that happens naturally in the way the brain has designed itself to be able to let go. And letting go is a colloquialism for forgetting of extraneous, unimportant information and to focus on the important stuff. There's a, a, an expression used, flashbulb memories, you know, which is when you remember things of really you know, special or, or extraordinary events, like uh, you know, the, uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember when President Kennedy was assassinated, or my mother would remember when World, World War II ended, or you know, we'll remember. Or, or ask anyone now where they were during 9-11, particularly New Yorkers, Americans, and maybe the world. That is a great flashbulb memory. And the interesting thing about flashbulb memories, this gets to what the brain decides, so to speak, is that has a strong emotional valence. It turns out that emotions are, are spray painted on our brains, unlike just 
information which might be considered, well, we're not really sure if it's important, but the way the amygdala works and the brain works, if it's really an emotional event, that's what 9-11, Kennedy, World War II victory, that all gets imprinted our, in our brain very, very clearly and typically permanently. Well, so is a flashbulb memory a uh, non-traumatic, non-noxious um, a form of what, uh, in its more extreme version, causes PTSD? You know, that's probably a simplification, but I think that's generally right. And I think uh, if uh, PTSD experts were on the call, they would generally agree with that. Obviously, it's more complicated. But yes, basically, you know, what I do deal with in that chapter is you could take two people exposed to the same emotional stress, 9-11. There are people who suffered PTSD from 9-11. The same person, same exposure. I mean, the same exposure, two different people. One develops PTSD, one doesn't. Why is that? interesting question, obviously complicated answer, but embedded in that is the ability to learn how to forget those emotional memories. The person who has PTSD for a number of reasons simply can't forget as well as the person who emerges more healthily. Yeah, do you think that our treatments for enabling the uh, dissipation of the traumatic memory are very effective? Well, I, I would ask, you're more the, the, the psychiatry expert than I, but I think if when I talk to people about exposure therapy in a way that is, now we know in retrospect, now that we know the basic science, exposure therapy, so if you have a phobia to a snake and you're exposed to it over and over again, but now in a benign setting, you're letting go of that association between a snake and a fear. Um, some would argue that psychotherapy allows you to disentangle more, more complicated knots that connect emotions with factual information. Um, and, you know, there's, as you know, there's a really emerging literature on drugs like MDMA. And what MDMA does is it relaxes our fear memories. That actually emerges from the new science of forgetting. So I think it is, it does support the idea that fear forgetting behaviorally, therapeutically, or pharmacologically is the way to help with PTSD. So I'll just offer my opinion that the current treatments are effective, but not very effective. No. Uh, and um, the kind of leading candidate for something new is um, MDMA or ecstasy-assisted therapy. And uh, interestingly, when I first uh, uh, was reading about this, I immediately felt that pharmacologically, uh, the use of MDMA, which was uh, really a, a releasing agent for serotonin and, and, and norepinephrine was not pharmacological. There wasn't a strong rationale for why it would be effective, but I'm reading the papers, I see it's being used kind of as a psychic anesthetic. In other yeah. words, the exposure therapy is so painful. Like if you, if, you, if you had your appendix removed without anesthesia, it would right. be very painful. But if you have anesthesia, similarly, MDMA enables people to go through the reliving of the experience. Right. And, you know, neither you nor I uh, can or perhaps should at this point prescribe ecstasy. But when I try to, you know, if you really want to understand the benefits of forgetting, speak to people who have tried MDMA. And we now know, but only in the last few years, exactly what MDMA is doing. It's doing a lot, all drugs do. But what it does is it turns down the memory stores of our fear memories. But you, but, but you have to combine it with the exposure, don't you? Yeah, no. I'll, and so a few things on that, Jeff. First of all, you know, people have experienced MDMA for decades, but only in the last few years. Um, so Carl Dizerhoff and others have really clarified 
what is the mechanism? And one of the key mechanisms, all drugs do a lot of things, but one of the key mechanisms is basically to turn down the part of our brain that stores fear memories. As an editorial, I'd like to just first comment that if people ask me, why do we need forgetting? Speak to the testimonials of people who've tried MDMA. And what they ended up calling MDMA is ecstasy because it seems to be so pro-social in our feelings towards others and our ability to love. So I think that's interesting. The second thing I'll say therapeutically, I think you're absolutely right. What, even though we know what ecstasy is doing or MDMA, it's essentially turning down the fear memories. Uh, so it's sort of an anesthetic for fear memories. But if you stop the uh, ecstasy, it'll turn back up. So it gives you a window of time in which or during which you can now have uh, more long lasting effects using uh, talk therapy or other interventions. The final thing I'll say, uh, which is slightly facetious, but not completely, um, ecstasy was used before it was illegal by couple therapists. And when I speak to couple therapists now and they say, you know, I know, Scott, you're developing drugs for Alzheimer's, but when you have a drug for forgetting, call us. It's going to really help our practices. Because I think couples, being in a couple myself, I've loved my, life, my wife for 26 years, but we all know that it's sometimes good to forget. And I think that's an interesting observation. So, so were you, were you say, suggesting that this couple service said that ecstasy was a great facilitator for couples therapy? Well, it was used. It was used in the 70s before it was uh, it was banned by the FDA for general use and prescription. They used it recreationally and uh, it's now banned. Uh, now it might come back. But they're telling me if you develop another drug that you could approve for, for fear forgetting, give us a call. It's going to help us. Well, I, I need to add the fact that um, MDMA does have addictive potential. And when one talks about using it therapeutically, the question of dosage, frequency of administration uh, comes up. Um, and, you know, medicine historically has, you know, gone down, you know, uh, paths of treatments they thought that were you know, really miraculous and turned out to not be without their risks. Uh, Freud was addicted to cocaine. Uh, I don't know if it was Halstead or, or Osler, uh, one of the, the surgeons was, so, you know, there's, and, and obviously LSD with Timothy Leary uh, was a, a, a problem. So these things are potentially therapeutically beneficial, but that's why the rigorous research needs to be done to ensure that the, the, the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah, rigorous research, more information clearly, but also I don't think uh, any of your uh, audience members would take many of the drugs they're taking uh, without the supervision of a doctor. Any, you know, I take Lipitor. If I would take too much Lipitor, that would also have some negative consequences. So it has to be, you know, carefully administered. First, let's understand it better, which I agree with you, we don't. So um, in, in the book, in a very artful way, you, you lay out this anatomy of memory and forgetting um, in terms of the anatomical uh, components and the mechanisms for establishing memories and retrieving them and storing them. But just to get down to the cellular and molecular level, when the rubber hits the, the road, what's actually happening that's enabling the memories to be stored and enabling to be eliminated through, through, through a forgetting or weakening and dissipation process? Yeah, no, that's, it's a good question. It's sort of a different level of analysis. So just like I think people intuitively know that computers have complicated networks, many things happening. You can reduce the fundamental mechanism to a bit, 
right? So what's the fundamental mechanism of memory? The bit of memory is really when two tips of neurons strengthen their connection between them. And one can illustrate this by imagining that there are millions of neurons that, that record and store a face, a million neurons that store and record a name. And it's when you have the strengthening of those connections among those neurons, and you can reduce it to one neuron as, an, as, a, as a thought experiment, that is the basic uh, bit of memory. And with that- That's, that, that's, that's what uh, your mentor, Eric Kandel, won the Nobel Prize for. And my mentor, Eric Kandel, uh, led the effort in clarifying that molecular toolbox. So that molecular toolbox has been elucidated by Eric and by others, and they deserve the Nobel Prize to explain how neurons increase their connections. Uh, and it used to be thought that forgetting, normal forgetting, was just a rusting of those mechanisms. And that, so you gradually just have wear and tear and, and, the, and the forgetting is not, and the memory is not as strong as we want. Now we know that there's a completely different group of molecular mechanisms, which I call nanotools, because they are in our neurons, that actively do the opposite. They carefully disassemble that connection. So you have mechanisms of memory that strengthen the connections, and then you have memory uh, mechanisms of forgetting that disassemble them. And we know that they're separate. We know in Alzheimer's disease and aging, it's the memory toolbox of memory that are faulty. So it's different at that level. We know in some disorders, there are defects in the molecular me mechanisms of forgetting. So I think that's really, as a brain mechanic, given us a deeper understanding on how to control each. So your book is titled Forgetting, and that's the kind of organizing topic. Um, but the book really is so much more than that, because in describing how memory works and forgetting plays a role, both adaptively and maladaptively, um, you describe various types of conditions, you know, from autism to PTSD to individuals who are uh, hyperthymic and uh, assertive to others that are more timid and so forth. And, and you're really using forgetting as a pathway into describing variation in human nature, human personalities, temperament and behavior. And, uh, I found that to be extraordinary to do it in this way. It kind of lures the reader into, oh, we're going to figure out how I could stop forgetting you know, phone numbers or names and so forth. Um, but it's describing something. And that, that's very ambitious of you to sort of take that on. And uh, I'm not saying this just to flatter you, but um, it made me think of two things. One of your fellow Israeli uh, the author of Sapiens. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, Harari. Who, 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 you know, you think you're going to have some anthropological experience, and it turns out he explains the, you know, the arc of civilization. And it also uh, Oliver Sacks, you know, who used these human examples as a way of uh, trying to mine the brain and 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 the mind of human existence. Uh, was that your intent starting out? First of all, Jeff, that's that's a, that's a real compliment, uh, a profound compliment, particularly about Oliver, who, as you know, was a colleague for a short period of time at Columbia, and I had the privilege of seeing patients with him. And I, I very carefully, on whether this was purposeful, I'm not saying I achieved the Oliver Sacks quality, but it was very clear to me as I was thinking about what kind of book to write, and because I do read a lot, I could have I could organize all the books by doctors like me into different kinds. And I very much wanted this to be a book of ideas, of culture, uh, anchored in literature as much as I can, 
So I'm really delighted that you picked up on it. I would say that Oliver Sacks, though, was onto himself. He was really sui generis. He would, what he used, and I actually had, I, I, I wrote this up for my editor who was just like, who does this? Who actually analyzes different than I, I do? And I did, and I found it helpful. Oliver, what he does is he's not always, and I say this with complete respect, and I'm sure most people who knew Oliver would agree with, he, he wasn't always spot on about the neurology of the brain, but he was uh, right enough to then use that as a, as a jumping point to riff off of culture, science, uh, history, ideas, and he was brilliant. And I don't think anyone's gonna compete with him ever again. My book tilts a little bit more, a lot more towards trying to get the neurology and psychiatry, psychology right. Uh, and yet I try to anchor it in, in stories, stories of people I know, my own personal stories as we've discussed, but being ambitious. You know, there's one last chapter where I talk about the importance of forgetting for culture and communal memory and ethics. So I, I was ambitious and I'm happy that you didn't think I was overly ambitious. <laughs> and and uh, I think also what it really um, illustrated was the nexus between neuro neurology and psychiatry, which started out as sort of a single discipline in the early 19th century. And then over the course of the 19th century, began to divide uh, into distinct disciplines. But you know, they started out as the brain doctors, they're still the brain doctors. And this um, either imagined or artificial Cartesian divide between you know, the mind and the brain is what has historically kind of divided it. And um, you know, you're walking the walk as well as talking the talk because just by virtue of your title being appointed in psychiatry and working with uh, us in uh, various areas, PTSD, schizophrenia, uh, aging, and um, the dementias, uh, you know, that, that reflects this. I, what I say is, is that the brain is so big and so complex, it required at least three specialties to deal with it, neurology, psychiatry, and neurosurgery. Yeah, and, and um, this is, again, in kind, not me paying an idle compliment. I think the reason why we get along so well, I think the reason why why you encourage me to be a member of psychiatry is because in many ways I am, and because in many ways like you, like Eric Kendall for that matter, we don't see the distinction. We see it as brain. And the distinctions are historical. Some, in some ways they're helpful as we try to help patients see the right kind of doctor. But of course it's all the brain. And um, it is interesting that Freud was a neurologist. Um, it, is, it is interesting that schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease were labeled by the same psychiatrist in the 1910s. So I, I think there is a general goal for you, for me, and for Eric, Kendall, and others to see how much we could uh, bridge the gap uh, that has been established somewhat artificially. In the epilogue, you come back to uh, the patient that you begin uh, the book uh, with uh, Carl, and um, he's uh, a lawyer who's you know kind of contentious and uh, um, and uh, probative in his uh, questioning of you, which I'm sure you liked, uh, never shrinking from a debate. Um, but he's you know he's saying you know I'm impressed, and he compliments you on the anatomy and the diagnosis and uh, all that. Uh, and then he says, what can you do for me? Exactly. So, you know, you, you end with kind of a, 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 a plea for patience and a promissory for we'll get there. What do you think uh, the prospects are for, you know, memory enhancing or memory ablating drugs uh, uh, to, you know, facilitate this acquisition and, uh, and elimination process? 
Well, Jeff, since you were kind enough to begin with the process, let me say something about process. And that is that uh, for a number of years now, editors and publishers and agents have approached me to write a book about Alzheimer's disease, uh, thinking that I might be able to write a general book on Alzheimer's. Um, I'm happy to do that, I tell them, but only when there's a better last chapter or a last chapter, and there is none now, there are no cures. Uh, and so the epilogue was written uh, really to, to, to reflect what I think many of us feel, many of us who are you know, very sober, pessimistic scientists, the way our doctors, the way I was 15 years ago, to where I think we now are legitimately cautiously optimistic that we actually have finally found what is fundamentally broken in Alzheimer's and in aging. And to use back to the mechanic, to use a mechanics cliche, you can't fix something unless you know, unless you know what's broken. So I do think there's re reason for, for true optimism. I think um, if COVID showed anything is that once a pathway, a mechanism is identified, it's pretty impressive what biotechnology and biomedicine can achieve. So that's why I'd like to believe that I'm not being an Ollie optimist when I say, well, now that we know what's fundamentally broken, uh, we can hopefully get there. So there are two potential future books, if I may, one on Alzheimer's, and then for a future discussion, Jeff, on what you and I are working on for schizophrenia. Thanks for that uh, answer to, to what Carl was uh, requesting, which I often uh, have to invoke also in responding to people who are asking when are the next breakthrough is going to occur with respect to the illnesses that uh, I'm dealing with. Um, but there's also uh, another dimension that you didn't address in the book. You could have addressed. Um, it probably wasn't uh, it was a good decision that you didn't in, your, in, in, in this initial effort, but that's the policy side. You know, what about biomedical research funding, which is not putting enough uh, resources into studying the brain, the aging brain, the diseases that occur in the brain. And related to that, um, the uh, emphases of the private sector, the pharmaceutical and biotech uh, industries on developing treatments for these, uh, you know, just egregious or, or, or burgeoning public health needs um, those are things that take you out of your comfort zone, but I'm sure you have opinions and, and, and perspectives on. Yeah, well, if you, uh, if you said at the get-go that I'm Israeli, of course I have an opinion. That's redundant. But, uh, but a thoughtful opinion, I hope. First of all, on policy. Um, I think we now have two examples, and we can think of many. Once the body politic decided that HIV was a true societal problem, the field made massive advances. Once the body politic was forced to acknowledge that COVID-19 is a problem, it's truly almost a miracle that in a little over a year we have vaccinations. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to believe that not only for the aging brain, Alzheimer's and aging, but schizophrenia. And thanks to you, I've now seen patients, not only in my clinic who have Alzheimer's, but 20 year olds who have schizophrenia. And a doctor should never compare and contrast but they're both horrible disease with the disease of a 20 year old, of course, being a life sentence of living with it. So I think all these disorders require the kind of attention from society and politicians. On the, on the pharma side, the industry, pharmaceutical industries, you know, I talk with them a lot now. I think, you know, I've been involved with forming companies. And they, they often are very dispassionate. They're not, they're not making wrong decisions. What they require in their right is something called biomarkers. In other words, I can't 
if I had a drug for Alzheimer's or schizophrenia and I want to develop it, there's absolutely no, no way I can do that efficiently unless I can really measure the actual disease, whether it's blood tests or imaging tests, because even if it's positive or negative, I learn nothing. I can tell you the good news is that the pharmaceutical industry is re-engaging the brain because the field has been developing better of these biomarkers for Alzheimer's, for schizophrenia, et cetera. So we've been talking to Scott Small, a professor of neurology and psychiatry at Columbia University and the author of a new book uh, called Forgetting, which is a fascinating read and uh, really an enjoyable one. Um, Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you, John, for the interest and also for the wonderful discussion and questions. Really nice. And thanks for the audience for listening. This is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this has been Shrink Speak.